Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we rank every horror movie ever made in chronological order from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing pretty good, uh, because we have some big news. Yeah! We got a Patreon! Yes! I made us a, a Patreon page, sort of a big new thing for us. Yeah, we mentioned at the end of last week's episode, but now we're mentioning it into your ear holes right now. Great phrasing. Yeah, awesome. If you'd like to continue to hear great phrasing like this, the show's continuing regardless, and the show will always be free to listen to. But it does cost us a little bit in time and money to make, uh, so we're hoping to get some support from our Creatures of the Night on our Patreon page. We're pretty excited about it. Uh, You can start supporting us from just as little as a dollar a month, and we will be eternally grateful for even that. Mm -hmm. Um, But at $5 a month, you get access to bonus audio. All those bloopers, all those tangents, all the research that we cut for time because we don't really need to know about the history of blood transfusions. All of that stuff will be available at the $5 a month level. Yeah, we've already built up quite a big library of cut content that Sarah has kept locked away in the Scream Scene vault, uh, and that'll get... Opened for $5 level patrons. (laughs) It's one of those cases where you open it and moths and bats fly out. Um, $10 level patrons are going to get a monthly horror short story written by me that won't see publication anywhere else. Exclusive horror fiction, right to you. Instead of right into your ear holes, it'll be right into your eye holes. We have some goals that we hope to achieve with this Patreon that we're pretty excited about. Um, At the $150 goal... If we hit that, we're going to start doing monthly special episodes covering horror-adjacent movies. These are the movies that maybe get lumped in with horror but aren't really horror. Your your Teen Wolf, your Clue, your Rocky Horror Picture Show, your Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. (laughs) Horror comedies, yes, but also movies that just sort of get lumped in with horror like uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame or Man Who Laughs. Um, Just from association, um, or even movies from series that started out as horror but took a left turn. Stuff like Aliens isn't really a horror movie, even though Alien is, or Army of Darkness isn't really a horror movie, even though (laughs) the Evil Dead movies are. Um, Stuff like that will be talked about on these horror-adjacent specials if we reach that $150 goal. And at $200, we'll be able to upgrade our equipment. So all those pops that you usually hear that come from our heater, all the kind of shuffling and thumps that you hear from our upstairs neighbor, all of those can be lessened, if not completely eliminated, with brand new equipment. As well, if you listen to us on headphones or in stereo, Uh, you'll notice that we kind of sound like we're sitting on either side of you because Ben sounds more on one side and I sound more on the other. With equipment upgrades at the $200 level, we'll be able to make that not the case. Even things out a bit, yeah. Yes. Better sound quality. Balance. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, if you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast, and we'll also have a link to it on our Tumblr page. What are we watching this week, Ben? So this week, we are watching Mad Love from 1935, starring Peter Lorre and Colin Clive. 
Awesome. This is actually a Hollywood adaptation of a French novel that we've already seen a German silent film adaptation of. Uh, this is basically another version of Hands of Orlac. Mm-hmm. So it's been a while since our Hands of Orlac episode. Yeah, that's episode 12. Right. 1924. Yeah, so, so um, nine years ago. Yeah. No. 11. 11 years ago. Good job, Ben. <laughs> the novel, in its original French, Lima d'Orlac, uh, The Hands of Orlac, was written by Maurice Renard. I give some of this information in the episode on Orlac's Hand, episode 12, but here's kind of a refresher. Maurice Renard was born in 1875, and he died in 1939, and he's generally considered one of the most important French science fiction writers in the early 20th century. You know, he's right up there with, like, H.G. Wells, mm -hmm. uh, who, by the way, was also a big influence on the guy. His first publication was the story collection Fantômes et Fantoches, Phantoms and Puppets. Okay. In the French title, it has kind of a neat ring yeah, to it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and that was published in 1905. It included stories featuring a lot of science fiction stuff, like time travel, dinosaurs, and a lot of H.G. Wells-inspired works. Yeah, I seem to remember us talking about, like, a lot of his works just seeming to be riffs on Wells novels. Here's how to do it better. Yeah, the I two. Yeah, the island of Dr. Moreau's research assistant. Exactly. H.G. Wells was such an influence that Renard dedicated his first novel, Le Docteur Learn Sur Dieu, to him. And that was published in 1908. Its translated title is The Doctor Learn of God, or Subgod. Okay. Basically, like, this doctor has a god complex. Yeah. This novel uh, features that archetypal mad scientist who grafts human parts onto mice, mm -hmm. transplants a man's brain into a cow, so you have a very smart cow, and then he does the same with the cow's brain into the man, so you get kind of a minotaur-type deal. And, ultimately, the scientist's own transplant of his brain into a car. <laughs> And then the car, because the car is now mortal, uh, it dies. <laughs> I seem to recall us talking a lot about like his his work touching on a lot of like biological science kind of body horror stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. And in in this particular case of this novel, while its dedication to H. G. Wells shows a level of respect, um, there is that argument that the novel is more of a comedic parody of some of H.G. Wells's work, specifically The Island of Dr. Moreau. Mm -hmm. While serving in World War I, Renard would pause his writing career, coming back into the writing fold with 1920's Les Mains d'Orlac, The Hands of Orlac. While this remains one of Renard's most well-known works, its science fiction elements are a little minor compared to some of his other works, mm -hmm. um, especially with the novel's emphasis on horror, paranoia, and also that body horror. Mm -hmm. Future novels would focus more on these science fiction elements with grafting electronic eyes into someone's face right. uh, with L'Homme Touquet in 1921, a realistic examination of a man turning himself invisible and becoming blind as a result right. in 1923's 
l'homme qui voulait être invisible. Right. That's the, you wrote the invisible man wrong, H.G. Wells. Yeah, and I also just want to point out that the translated title is The Man Who Wanted to Be Invisible. <laughs> I like these straightforward titles, though. For sure. You don't have to guess about what these books are about. And then also, uh, you could see this, again, science fiction element with describing the process of cloning in 1924's Le Sing, which is the monkey. Okay. So those novels are, in the order that I mentioned them, what he published right after The Hands of Warlock. Mm -hmm. But you can see that he was always interested in these science fiction elements. Um, for example, in 1908, he published the novel Un homme chez le microbe, The Man and the Microbe, okay. uh, where it has that um, guy shrinking himself, dealing with insects, that kind of right. deal. That, Honey, I shrunk the kids. Yeah, that episode of every 1970s or 80s cartoon show. Totally. Right. Um, so that's like 1908. So he's yeah. always been interested in this. So in this case... The Hands of Warlock, it's kind of like a sidestepping of that into more of a horror thing. Him realizing that, like, eh, I'm going to stick with the science mm -hmm. on this one. Le Mat d'Orlac, published in 1920 and translated two years later and published around the world, features a famous pianist named Stephen Orlac, who uh, is traveling on a train when it crashes. Um, this railway accident results in... Serious head injuries, makes sense, and in the loss of his hands. Mm -hmm. And I just want to be clear, it's not the loss of the use of his hands. It's not a Doctor Strange situation up in here. It's a, no, your hands are gone. Okay, yep. No longer able to continue his pianist career, Orlac decides to agree to the surgery by famous and controversial Dr. Sorrell. Mm-hmm. He learns after the surgery that the hands belonged to an executed assassin. And the rest of the novel features Orlac devolving into madness, fearing the danger that his hands hold within them with seemingly a, a mind of their own. Right. As the novel progresses, I love this phrasing of crime, murder, and conspiracy abound, ultimately culminating in a standoff between Orlac, a mysterious man, and the police. This idea of, I've been in an accident, you gave me a new organ or thing, and now that thing's taking over me, that idea has been adapted many, many times, whether yeah. that's television, radio plays, film. Yeah, I think, I think, like, this is the progenitor of it, but this basically became a stock plot after totally. a while of, like, oh, I have the killer's hands, so now I'm a killer. Yeah, Whoa. totally. Kind of taking that, like paranoia element of it and making it real yes. in the development of that trope. One of the adaptations we've seen, the 1924 silent horror film, Orlach's Hand, with Conrad Veidt in the lead role. So that's episode 12. Currently, that film is ranked number 20. Um, and that's out of 58 films. Yeah. That's pretty good. Uh, the other famous adaptation is 1935's Mad Love with Colin Clive. As Orlac. In the novel, and we also see this in the 1924 film, the themes of body autonomy, gaslighting, and body horror are all kind of in there. Mm -hmm. Which kind of makes sense with the 1924 film because it's in the German expressionist aesthetic. Yeah, definitely. To remind people of what Orlac's Hund was about, because it's been 
many an episode since sure. then. It was directed by Robert Vina, and it features Conrad Wright as Orla. It follows the book fairly closely, though, as we discussed in that episode, this German expressionist film is far more interested in Orlach's paranoia and a sense of growing guilt, rather than the novel's mysterious plot. Yeah. As murders are committed with fingerprints pinning the murders on the executed criminal's hands, which Orlach has, Orlach fears more and more that he no longer has control over his hands. <laughs> the film's climax goes through a few different turns, um, because first it turns out that the murderer who had been executed had his head reconnected by the doctor and has been murdering people and pinning essentially those murders on Orlach because Orlach has his hands. Right. The fingerprints are tying it to, to Orlach. Yeah. Then it turns out it's all a blackmail scheme by the doctor's assistant who replicated the murderer's fingerprints through wax and rubber gloves and was murdering people to use that to blackmail Orlach mm -hmm. to like pay money or whatever. Yeah. And it, and he's actually secretly like a criminal who's been on the run for ages and is like well known and the detective in the movie has been like tracking his whole career in junk. Exactly. Like it's a very like weird ending. With a ton of exposition. With a ton of exposition and silence so you get title card after title card whatever but it, this all happens within the last 10 minutes mm -hmm. of the film. But with it when it ends turns out Orlek's fine. He's not crazy. It's a kind of relatively happy ending. Yes. And, like I said, all of that's covered in the last, like, 10 or 15 minutes, with the earlier 80-odd minutes pretty much just focused on Veidt's horrific looks at his hands. Right, yep. But it, it is good. It is a good movie, because it's ranked 20 out of 58. It clearly is good. Yeah, it's better than The Mummy. Yeah, but it has problems. One thing that we definitely liked about the film, besides Veidt, who is just always great, was how... The film advanced, I guess, like a, a toned-down German Expressionism with um, its large sets, its focus on the Orlach's psyche, uh, stylized lighting, all of that. But it toned it down, so it wasn't Caligari, mm -hmm. but it was like a step towards how you can see German Expressionism get adopted into more general horror and also even into film noir way later. Yeah. It's kind of the first step towards that iteration of it. Yeah, synthesizing that Expressionism with a more realistic look a little bit, so it's not so extreme. Yeah. So that makes Orlach's Hond represent a very interesting step forward for, um, I guess you could say, genre for German Expressionism. So I'm really curious with Mad Love because we have a German Expressionist guy, Carl Freund, coming back to direct it. What I remember us really liking about Hands of Orlach was the cinematography invite, and basically what we didn't like was how convoluted the plot twists got right at the very end. Yeah. Yeah. Which, like, they're adapting this novel. They follow the novel, but, like, they were obviously interested in something else but I hope that Mad Love's at least better at synthesizing something from the novel into this new iteration of this adaptation to better focus on whatever it's interested in. Yeah, I find that, um, you know, when novels or, or source material of some kind is adapted to film, the most interesting question, what did the filmmakers choose to emphasize? Mm -hmm. You know, what did they find important, right? And 
you know, because usually novels have the freedom to kind of... Wander. Yeah, and have a million characters and subplots. So you often have to choose what the movie's going to be. So with Mad Love, it seems that MGM was looking to compete, at least initially, with Universal on the horror front. When Universal geared up with Bride of Frankenstein, MGM had responded with Mark of the Vampire. When Universal followed Bride up with Werewolf of London and The Raven, MGM felt the need for themselves to produce a new horror film in order to compete with those. Which is interesting because the pre-code horror few years, MGM tried and was like, cool, I'm going to stay out of this. Yeah. And we didn't want to compete at all. And now they're really wanting to compete. Yeah, and I think... Mark of the Vampire had been a success for them, so that encouraged further efforts, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when looking for something to provide the basis for this new film, Florence Crew-Jones translated Le Man d'Orlac for MGM to provide the source material, and Guy Ender, writer of the Mark of the Vampire script, he was assigned to write the film. To direct, MGM uh, brought on Carl Freund, as you mentioned. We've seen Freund's cinematography in The Golem, Dracula, and Murders in the Rue Morgue, and we last saw him direct with 1932's The Mummy. Freund had made four films in the meantime, a musical, an adventure film, a drama, and a comedy, all for Universal Pictures. Interesting. I would love to see his take on those very specific genre movies. <laughs> it's likely that MGM sought to beat Universal with one of their own by mm -hmm. hiring Freund, uh, while Freund probably felt that he was moving up the studio food chain as MGM was largely seen as the most prestigious of the major studios. Freund worked very closely with Guy Ender on the film's early drafts, but the film's producer, John Considine Jr., hired P.J. Wolfson for later rewrites, and then finally enlisted John Balderston for the final polishes. Ah, uh, John. So Balderston, of course, we're familiar with for his scripts for Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, and Bride of Frankenstein. And so he therefore represented yet another attempt to sort of beat Universal at their own game. Balderston's primary job on the rewrites, which actually continued into filming, was to retailer the script for the actor who was selected to star in it, Peter Lorre. Peter Lorre is the best, but this is the first time that we've seen him on the show. Yeah, um, so Peter Lorre was born Laszlo Lewinstein on June 26, 1904, in Rosaheg in the Austro-Hungarian Empire to Jewish parents. His mother died when he was four, and his father served in the Austrian army in World War I. Mm. He began acting in Vienna in 1921 under the name Peter Lorre, reaching the Berlin stage by the late 1920s, appearing in the plays of Bertolt Brecht. In 1929, he met fellow actress Celia Lovsky, who introduced him to film director Fritz Lang. Oh, this led to his breakout role in his third feature film appearance, M, from 1931, from director Fritz Lang. M is really good, and might even be considered one of those horror-adjacent movies. Yeah, it's, it certainly rides the line there. It's more of a thriller, I think, but it's a very early sort of serial killer movie. Laurie plays a serial child murderer. 
uh, that everyone's on the lookout for. Yeah. Laurie would make nine more films in Germany before the Nazis came to power, and it was necessary for Laurie and Lovsky to flee the country, taking refuge in Paris and then in London, and getting married after having lived together for five years. In London, he was spotted by a producer and cast for a major role in Alfred Hitchcock's The Man Who Knew Too Much, mm. based on the strength of his performance in M. Uh, Laurie didn't speak much English at the time and performed most of his role phonetically, and yet still his performance was the most praised in the picture, which was a critical and box office success. Good for him. Laurie then traveled with his wife to Hollywood, where the actor was awarded a contract with Columbia Pictures. Laurie wished to star in an adaptation of Crime and Punishment, which studio head Harry Cohn knew would be expensive to make. So in order to head off any potential losses, Cohn agreed to loan Laurie to MGM for their Hands of Orlac adaptation. The film's story was retooled to revolve around Laurie, who was not playing Orlac, but rather the surgeon. And after that retooling, the story was retitled Mad Love. So it's more inspired by, like, the, the raven or the no, black it's, cat. No, it's definitely still an adaptation. Okay. They've just changed who the central character is. Okay, cool. The refocusing of the story from Orlac to his surgeon, uh, who is a minor character in the original, may have been to take advantage of Laurie as the hot new thing. But it easily may also have been due to the state of the actor who had been chosen to follow in Conrad Veidt's shoes playing Orlac, Colin Clive. Mm -hmm. So as we mentioned in our Bride of Frankenstein episode, Clive's alcoholism had gotten quite bad by this point, uh, leading to a serious deterioration in his health. Um, and I feel like this is a big part of the impetus of why he's no longer the main character in his own story uh, in this version. This is the last time that we will see Colin Clive. Uh, he would make four more films before his death from tuberculosis in 1937. Peter Lorre would be one of his pallbearers. Filming on Mad Love initially started with Chester Lyons as cinematographer, but Freund insisted on getting Greg Toland and held up filming until Toland was free. Cheese. Born in 1904, Toland began his career as the cinematographer of Robert Flory's 1928 experimental film, The Life and Death of 9413, A Hollywood Extra. That actually sounds like a really great movie. Toland, it was actually very well received. Toland developed his chiaroscuro side-lit lighting style because of the two 400-watt bulbs he was given to light uh, 9413 with. One of them burnt out. <laughs> Toland became one of the youngest cinematographers in Hollywood, uh, but also one of the most sought after. Mad Love was his 32nd film in his then seven-year career. Today, Toland is most known for Wuthering Heights, The Grapes of Wrath, and most significantly, Citizen Kane, for which oh. Toland innovated a number of new styles and techniques. Jeez. Shooting was fraught with conflict, between Freund, Toland, and producer Constantine. Reportedly, Freund repeatedly tried to sort of subsume Toland's role as cinematographer. Right, because he started out as one. Exactly. While Constantine 
badly wanted to direct the film, despite having no idea how to do so. So Toland would then try to be producer? Like, that's, they just rotate? <laughs> um, maybe. Shooting was eventually completed one week over schedule. The film's score is by Dmitry Tomkin. Born in Russia, he was a classical composer who moved to Berlin after the Bolshevik Revolution. He moved to New York in 1925, becoming a concert pianist, hey. and then moved to Hollywood due to the Depression. A broken arm ended his performing career, and he became a composer for motion pictures instead. I feel like he would identify with Orlac a bit. <laughs> his first score was from a 1933 version of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, Mad Love came fairly early in his career, um, but... Later films scored by Chomkin would include Lost Horizon, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Shadow of a Doubt, It's a Wonderful Life, Red River, DOA, The Thing from Another World, Strangers on a Train, High Noon, Dial M for Murder, The Guns of Navarone, and many, many others. The Hayes office ordered several cuts on Mad Love, uh, leading to about 15 minutes worth of trims. Uh, these included much of the actual visuals of death and injury around the train wreck. Okay. Um, the surgery scene where the hands are attached. The fondling of a wax figure by the surgeon. Oh, boy. And in general, as much sex and death as could be done away with. Mad Love was released on July 12th, 1935, too late in production to react to the negative reception to The Raven. Mm-hmm. Critics were unanimous in their praise for Peter Lorre, whose performance received superlative notices. The rest of the cast was not as well regarded, and overall the film was given mixed reviews, with The Hollywood Reporter saying, quote, it falls in the middle between art and box office. What does that mean? Like it's halfway between, you know, art and trash, I guess? I don't know. Audiences were even more harsh to the film. Mad Love ultimately only made... $364,000 on a budget of $403,000. It was released in the UK under the Hands of Orlac title, and there were calls to ban it outright, including from the head of the BBFC. But it was released with the H certificate amongst much controversy. The 1-2 failure of Universal's The Raven and MGM's Mad Love signaled that the era of the A horror movie was over. Mm. Carl Freund would never direct a film again. He, was he, like, blacklisted? Nope. Just demoted back down to cinematographer, where he continued his cinematography career through the 40s into the 50s, where he invented the three-camera sitcom cinematography technique for I Love Lucy. It sounds like maybe he was happier being a cinematographer, though. It's possible, for sure. Uh, I do find it interesting that, like, by looking at horror films, we have seen both his directorial debut and his final film as a director. Mm -hmm. In modern appraisals, uh, Mad Love is actually very well regarded. Uh, it has 100% on Rotten Tomatoes these days. Um, I thought only Black Panther had that. No. And it's even considered a stylistic precursor to Citizen Kane by some. Although I find some of those opinions to be a little bit uh, exaggerated. Fair enough. 
So how are, how are we watching this? Well, Mad Love is available on DVD from Warner Brothers in their Legends of Horror collection, alongside Dr. X, Return of Dr. X, Mark of the Vampire, Mask of Fu Manchu, and The Devil Doll. Uh, however, it has no digital streaming release as of yet, so if you want to watch along with us, you're going to have to find a copy of that DVD somehow. The Devil Doll, I can't wait to find out more about. <laughs> Just saying, that sounds so crazy. Well, if you'd like to check out our website, see other films on our playlist there, and maybe just, like, catch up with some of the other episodes, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss Mad Love from 1935. See you on the other side, everybody. to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Mad Love from 1935, directed by Carl Freund. What did you think, Ben? It's a pretty good movie. It's really, really good. It's... Surprisingly dark for a code movie. That's true. They made some choices in how they adapted the novel that I think allowed them to take advantage of some loopholes in the code. Mm-hmm. And we talked about really what that central change is a bit in the intro, which is that they shifted the main character. It's sort of interesting to see the exact same story as Hands of Orlac, just told with an entirely different point of view. Like, a basic plot summary of this and Orlac's Honda would run pretty much almost exactly the same. Like, the same major beats happen in both, and yet the two are almost completely different movies. Yes. And it's... Basically just from changing the POV character from Orlac to his doctor. But also what they want to focus on. Yep. Yeah. Give us the down low. In Mad Love, our main character is Dr. Gogol, played by Peter Lorre. And like every other Peter Lorre character, he's a big creep. In this film, the object of his creepfection is Yvonne, who is an actress in a, like, Grand Guignol theater... Uh, who he's been coming to see, like, every day forever, and has fallen in love with. Problem is, Yvonne's actually married to Stephen Orlack, a brilliant pianist. He's been on tour, and she's been acting, so they haven't really gotten to see much of each other since they got married. But now his tour's ending, and she's quitting acting, so they can be together. And when Gogol finds this out, you know, he's he doesn't take it well in that way that creeps often don't take no very well. Problem is, Orlac's train crashes. Problem or opportunity. Right. So on the same train that Orlac was traveling on, there was Rolo, a convicted murderer who was a, like a knife thrower in the circus and killed somebody and has been sentenced to the guillotine. The train crashes. Orlac's hands are crushed. The only person who might be able to save him is Dr. Gogol, because Dr. Gogol is like a crazy, brilliant experimental surgeon. Yvonne brings Orlac to him, and, you know, you gotta save him, Doc, and all of this. After the train crash, you know, Rolo 
was executed by Guillotine. And Gogol was there because Gogol's like a huge weirdo. Like, he saves people's lives with experimental surgery, but, you know, he also goes to see Grand Guignol Theater and gets off on it. He goes to see Guillotine executions and gets off on it. He has an organ, which is number one sign you're a villain in a horror movie. <laughs> so he gets a brilliant idea, which is he's going to take Rolo's hands and put them on Orlac. So he does that. Because he must save these hands because it's so important to Yvonne. Yeah, exactly. He doesn't tell Orlac or Yvonne that's what he's done. He's just like, yeah, I fixed them because I'm great. Yeah. Unfortunately, even after a long period of physical therapy and recovery... Uh, Stephen just can't play the piano like he used to. And it's a problem because the Orlacs are running out of money. Now, Yvonne could go back to acting, but nobody seems to bring that up. Instead, Stephen goes to see his stepfather, who's played by an actor who looks like he's maybe the same age as Colin Clive, but wearing, like, a, a <laughs> comb-over, like, skull cap yeah. and, like, a fake goatee to look older. Orlac's stepfather... Runs a jewelry store, is very wealthy, but doesn't get along with Orlac. They apparently have never gotten along. So when Orlac asks him for money, the stepfather's like, no, and laughs in his face. And one thing that Orlac's been finding since he got these new hands is that he's really good with knives. And he sort of throws a knife in his dad's jewelry shop because he gets so angry and rushes off. So he goes to Gogol and he's like, hey, these hands don't work. I can't play the piano and I always want to kill people with knives. And Gogol tells him, like, don't worry about it. Those are definitely your hands. I'm Gogol. I'm great. I definitely didn't put, like, a knife thrower's hands on you. You just have weird Freudian shit going on about <laughs> knives. Go home. You'll be fine. Then Yvonne comes to Gogol and says, you've got to, you know, fix Steven. And Gogol says, hey, he's crazy. Chuck the zero and get with the hero, basically. <laughs> uh, except it, he's Peter Lorre, so it's all super creepy. And Yvonne doesn't take that well. She basically calls him out for being a huge creep and for being terrible, and then leaves. Gogol doesn't take rejection well um, and has a bit of a mental breakdown mid-surgery. You know, he's going kind of mad, and he can't take the rejection, and he realizes that... Maybe the way out of this situation is to make Orlac go mad. Because <laughs> it's just so easy, apparently. <laughs> Gogol concocts a plan. He kills Stephen's dad uh, with a knife, which has Rolo's fingerprints on it. And in this version, they actually never explain how he got Rolo's fingerprints on it. But I guess you're not allowed to explain how murders get done anymore, so... Well, there's that, and the murder weapon is implied to be the same knife that Stephen threw yeah. into the window or whatever. And it's like, how did Gogol know that? Yeah, Anyways. But it doesn't really matter. No. The police see this. They're not really paying attention to the fingerprints part. They're paying attention to the, yeah, his son was in here yesterday and had a huge argument with him about money part. They go and arrest Stephen. Stephen's already convinced that he killed his dad because he's noticed that his hands are weird and use knives good and that he wants to kill people all the time. But also he got a mysterious phone call from a mysterious someone for a mysterious meetup at a mysterious place. And he goes to it and this mysterious someone's got like, like a big black trench coat and a slouch hat and like sunglasses and robot hands. <laughs> and he talks in this raspy whisper. He explains to Stephen like, yeah, I used to have hands. Now I have robot hands. 
He doesn't say robot. I know. He has prosthetics. They just look... They're gauntlets from, like, a suit of armor. Anyways. So, he doesn't have hands. Steven has hands. You get what I'm saying? I'm Rolo. You killed your dad with my hands. That's how they're good at murder. And Steven's like, that's not possible. Rolo got guillotined. And Mystery Man's like, ah, but you see Gogol put my head back on and, like, opens up his trench coat and there's this weird neck brace. So I am Rolo. Ha ha ha. And so Steven runs out. He's convinced he killed his dad. The cops show up, arrest Steven, and he basically just turns himself in, practically. Why does Yvonne go to Gogol's place at this point? I forget. Steven has said, I'm convinced these are not my hands. Yeah, these are Rolo's hands. So the person who would know is Gogol. So Yvonne goes to him to be like, hey, can you tell the cops that that's not a thing? Yeah. So Yvonne goes to Gogol's place. Thing is, remember when I said Gogol was a creep? So when Yvonne's um, weird Grand Guignol Theater of Horrors company closed down, they had like a wax figure of her, and Gogol bought it off them, and has been keeping it in his house, and playing the organ to it, and making his weird alcoholic housekeeper brush its hair and stuff. For a lot of the movie, the fact that the housekeeper's alcoholic feels like a bad joke, but it is actually semi-plot important at this point, because when Yvonne goes to the house, the housekeeper, who's very drunk, thinks she is the wax statue somehow having gotten out of the house and, like, leads her back upstairs and puts her in the room where Gogol keeps the statue and is like, hey, don't move, don't get out of here. So now Yvonne's in that room. She sees the statue. She, in fact, accidentally knocks it over and breaks it. Then Gogol comes home laughing about how easy it was to drive Stephen Orlack mad. And, you know, there's not much choice for what Yvonne can do other than stand there and pretend to be the statue and hope Gogol doesn't notice. And, you know, Gogol's talking to her, uh, thinking she's the statue and explaining how he did everything. Meanwhile, at the police station, you know, they've figured out, hey, the fingerprints on here are Stephen Orlack's, Rolo's, and the ones on the knife. They're all the same. And Stephen Orlack is like, yeah, I told you, Gogol put Rolo's hands on me. And they start, like, putting the pieces together. They're like, wait, maybe this is all Gogol. So the cops and Orlack are off to Gogol's place to go arrest him. Meanwhile, while Gogol's playing the organ to the wax statue, uh, Yvonne tries to kind of slip out, but Gogol has like a weird pet cockatoo that scares Yvonne and scratches her on the cheek. So when Gogol turns around, when she screams, he notices that like she's got blood running down her cheek. And he, at this point, is kind of you know, in a crazy high. So he's actually convinced that the statue has come to life and that, like, the legend of Galatea has come true. And he's going, you know, full-blown crazy. Shifts from, like, I'm going to force myself on you to, like, then shift to, no, I'm going to kill you because um, every man must kill the one he loves or something like that. So he's about to strangle her right when, like, the cops and everybody show up. And they can't get into the room because the doors are locked, but they can open like a weird cubbyhole door thing in the door that you can use to see into the room. And through that, Stephen Orlack can use his like magic knife throwing powers from his new hands to throw a knife through that hole and kill Gogol. And uh, him and Yvonne presumably live happily ever after, even though their money problems still aren't really solved. But maybe he becomes a circus knife thrower. Who knows? It doesn't matter. The end. It's interesting to think about this movie in comparison to Orlak's Hand, 
but also with some other movies that we've seen on the list. Yeah, certainly. Um, what, they've, what they've done to change it makes it very similar to certain other movies. Yeah. Last episode, we talked about the Raven and how, with the code, it meant that Lugosi's character needed to be, like, really full-on villain. Yeah. Kind of a psychotic villain. Mm -hmm. And how that was off-putting to audience members who had never quite seen something like that before. Yeah. Peter Lorre here feels, in the beginning, a bit more subtle. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it gets turned up to 11 by the time he's in the final scene, but he, he feels a bit more subtle um, in the beginning. And yet, throughout the movie, as he ramps up, we get these moments of sympathy with him. We hear how he heals sick kids and veterans. Mm -hmm. We see him not charging people for money. Right. Charging people for money. He Char does. <laughs> charging people for the healing services that he offers. And even when, like, he starts, like, a little bit of a rant where he talks about how he's conquered science, but he just can't conquer love. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of that, like, aww. <laughs> He's certainly more in that Phantom of the Opera sort yes. of category where we kind of feel sorry for him. Yet, in no part is he not a villain. In no yeah. part of the movie. Yeah, he's a creep from the moment we see him. Yes. And even when you bring up stuff like how, you know, he doesn't charge anyone for the surgeries and he, he helps sick kids walk again and stuff like that. Part of that is to just show how smart he is. Yeah, you don't get the feeling like he does any of these surgeries out of, like, the goodness of his heart either. Because, like, we see scenes where, you know, crying mothers thank him for what he's done and he just kind of ignores them. He's very dispassionate about everything that he does. And it seems like even when Yvonne comes to him and begs him to save Stephen Orlack, like, he agrees to do it, but the way he thinks he's going to do it first is just by am amputating the hands. He doesn't hit on the, like, I'm going to replace his hands thing until, like, the idea comes to him. And so in all these things, the through line is how brilliant he is, right? It's all of the stuff that he does is just about being like, well, I'm the only one who can do these things because mm -hmm. uh, I'm Dr. Gogol. I really have to hand it to Francis Drake. Peter Lorre is great in this movie. And I think Francis Drake, who plays Yvonne, is really good in her scenes with Peter Laurie. Mm. In her other scenes, she's just, like, I feel like you could just substitute another actress for, like, what she has to do in those other scenes. She reminds me a lot of, like, you know, Valerie Hobson or any number of these actresses mm. we've seen. When she is acting with Peter Laurie, she is so good at communicating her discomfort with Gogol. Mm -hmm. um, from the very beginning when they first meet. You can practically see her skin crawl. Yeah. She performs that tightrope of having to be cordial and friendly because this patron of your workplace is wanting to get to know you a little bit, mm -hmm. while also really, really not wanting to be around him. Mm -hmm. um, she does a very convincing job. And I think if there's any woman who watches this movie and has worked in customer service, uh, they will immediately, from the get-go, be like, yep. Yeah, I think you you definitely raise a good point there. Like, me watching this movie, you know, I thought she was fine. 
Um, I thought her biggest advantage was just that she has a lot more screen time oh, yeah. than a lot of her contemporaries get. But for me, the portrayal really did feel a lot like everybody else. Like, it's the sort of upper-class, proper lady who gets driven from worry to desperation to terror. But you raise a really good point about the um, that social situation that you bring up, because that's so common to so many women's experiences. And, like, I probably just didn't latch onto it because... I've never been in that situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's definitely, like, puts a different um, emphasis on it versus, like, a Phantom of the Opera. Because in in that movie, for example, like, the creepster character is, like, a mentor and someone that, like, you already trusted before they got creepy. Yeah, totally. Whereas, like, this is is definitely, like you said, this is that, like, situation where you're... (laughs) You have to be nice to this person because they're a customer or whatever, but, like, back off, buddy. <laughs> totally. And I think what's really interesting about this movie and the fact that it's 1935 is I feel like we've all had to or will come to confront the idea or that thought of, oh, he's such a nice guy, give him a chance. Right. And this movie dramatizes where that line of thinking goes from give him a chance to let him down easy, a scene we actually see, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. to he won't take no for an answer. Mm -hmm. That's a very good point. And the other movie that this film reminds me of is 1933's Murders in the Zoo. Okay, I didn't connect them at first. What's... uh... It's similar to the Phantom of the Opera in the sense that the woman is seen as, like, a possession to own. Mm-hmm. Like, with Gogol, he literally owns a replica of sure. Yvonne in his study. And with the husband in Murder in the Zoo, she's not even allowed to, like, talk to any other guy. He's so possessive. I guess the reason I didn't connect them was because in Murders in the Zoo, he already possesses her. It's not about a guy trying to, like steal someone away from you yeah. so much as, yeah. Um, I mean, I remember in the discussion of Murders in the Zoo, you brought up how this feels like the like sequel to Phantom of the Opera if Eric had gotten Christine. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, the, it's the what if the Phantom 1 issue of Marvel Comics' what if series. <laughs> and I think Murders in the Zoo is so dark, and it's 1933, so it's before the code, uh-huh. And I feel like the way that Freund is able to get away with um, a similar theme and the horror in this movie, its dark themes, its violence, is because it's all from Gogol's point of view. Yes. Um, and, like, that's it's kind of like a, yeah, uh-huh, Sarah, good job. But, like, um, I think it's significant that even though they're still doing it from this point of view, he still has that, like... You, you could get sucked in with a, like, he's a nice guy, give him a chance. It's that he's so pathetic, right? Like, in addition to being creepy and everything, like, like Yvonne, there's a scene where he's trying to be like, yeah, like, drop your husband and get with me and trying to kind of push himself on her. In a previous scene, she'd done the let him down easy bit. And this is the scene where she really puts her foot down, which ultimately makes him go crazy. And, like, she pushes him. And, like, he goes across the room, practically, and goes into a table. Like, he's no physical threat, really, right? So I feel like it makes him feel more pitiful 
because he's physically pathetic. Mm-hmm. Right? You're you're lulled a little bit by that, I think. Yeah. What's interesting with like this being from Gogol's point of view is like how well this movie brings in German expressionism. Yeah, yeah. It's still got that that styling, the sets and the and the lighting and everything. I mean, you know, it's Carl Freund, he knows what he's doing when it comes to that sort of style. Yeah. But I don't know if you noticed, but all of the or at least most of that kind of style um, with the sets or the lighting, it's all in Gogol's clinic or apartment. Yeah, yeah. When, we, when we're at the police station or the Orlax house or anywhere else in the movie, it's all just normal, realistic-looking sets. It's only when we go to Gogol's place that it's all, like, shit from the golem, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, like, to me, it was just like, yes, because with German Expressionism, it's the character's... Descent into Madness, or that psychology on display mm-hmm. in his home. Yeah. It's great. So in, in a way, I, I actually kind of thought about um, Caligari, especially when Gogol starts hearing Yvonne's words echo, and he's, like, looking around. It yeah. reminded me of that part where, like, the words Caligari are, like, written on the screen and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. yeah, for sure. So it's interesting that, like, I think you're coming at this from looking at this movie on its own terms, which I think is great. I think that's probably a really great way to go about it. And you've really dug up some things that are definitely there that I didn't quite... That maybe if I saw them, I didn't give them a lot of import. You know what I mean? Like, not saying I didn't notice the movie was about what it's about, but I, I it wasn't what I latched on to. And it, it makes total sense that you did, and it's good that you did, right? But what fascinated me watching this movie the whole way through was just picking apart and analyzing the narrative differences created by adapting the exact same source material, the exact same plot, like the exact same things happen in this movie. They have not really changed the plot at all. They've just changed who the protagonist is. They've changed who the protagonist is, and the other thing they've done is they've made Orlac's blackmailer or Orlac's surgeon the same character. They've melded two characters and made it his point of view. Mm -hmm. And how that structurally changes the story. You know, you talked about how well this movie shows Peter Lorre's arc, right? Where he's always bad, but at the start he's like a creep, and at the end he's like a psycho, right? And that (laughs) arc. And what's interesting about that for me is the whole central focus of the original Orlac's Handa was Orlac's descent into madness. Here, that's still here, but it's basically a subplot. And instead, what takes center stage is Gogol's descent into madness. So in a way, the the arc of the film, you know, what it's about, is still the same thing. Yeah. That descent into madness is still the central focus. It's just a different character's descent into madness. And I feel like Stephen here isn't so much a descent into madness, but um, definitely that paranoia Mm -hmm. that kicks off everything. But he, because maybe he's now positioned as the hero has to kind of be like shit i think something's wrong police please take me in before anything else happens yeah absolutely um granted you know if you want someone to be paranoid colin clive's a good (laughs) acting choice for that definitely um you're totally right that like part of the shift in focus of who the madman is you know we know that probably part of it was that like Colin Clive wasn't going to be able to hold a movie. Because, like, the only scenes in this movie that Orlac is in 
are the scenes where he kind of absolutely needs to be for the plot. Mm-hmm. Right? He's good in this movie, but he's not really given a lot to work with. Which is kind of ironic, given that it felt like the whole point of Orlax Honda was just to give Conrad Veidt the opportunity to, like, spend a whole movie, you know, overacting and going nuts, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, it was an acting showcase for Veidt. It's not for Colin Clive. He's, he's really just in it the minimum amount he needs to be. And we talked about how that was probably one of the reasons. But it feels like maybe another reason is it does help the story pass the code, you mm-hmm. know, so much more easily. Because... We always know that Orlac's innocent, right? There's never uh, a moment where we're in the position of maybe potentially having a sympathetic murderer as our protagonist. We, we, we know it's Gogol the whole time, so we know it's just a villain. This film goes to such a length to make sure that Stephen is innocent that it confirms that it is, in fact, Rollo's hands. Right, which was always kind of vague in the original, whether that actually was the thing that happened or not. Yeah, whether it was all in his head or not. But here it is confirmed, and um, I think that is a neat twist, given how that's what saves Yvonne at the end of the day. Yeah, it's like, it's like Orlac didn't kill anyone, but the transferring of Rollo's hands still gave him magic knife-throwing abilities. <laughs> Like, like yeah. no, Stephen, you're right. Your hands did make you a weird knife-throwing weirdo. You just didn't kill anyone. <laughs> um, one of the striking differences in, like, the structure of the two movies is how the story is paced. Mm. In our Orlac's Hand episode, we talked about the pacing a lot. Um, it, was, it was something we addressed. In the original Orlac's Hand, um, that movie is 113 minutes long. It's much longer than this film. The train crash is three minutes in. Right. His hands are replaced by 16 minutes in. And then the murder of the father doesn't happen until 77 minutes in. Uh, Then he meets with the mysterious Rolo, quote unquote, at 85 minutes. And everyone learns the truth at 107. So there's this huge stretch in the middle that's just solely devoted to Orlac's psychological decline. And everything that happens plot-wise is kind of jammed into the first 15 minutes or the last 15 minutes, right? Totally. Meanwhile, Mad Love is 68 minutes long. So it's, it's about a half hour, if not more, shorter. Uh, 40 minutes shorter. The train crash is 17 minutes in. So you're a quarter of the way through the movie. Uh, his hand is replaced at the 27-minute mark, so you're basically halfway through there. The father's death is 50 minutes in, uh, and then the meeting with Rolo is a minute after that, and then Orlac realizes he's not actually the killer, 63 minutes in. So the pacing is way different, and it's, it's because we don't really care about Stephen Orlac anymore. We're following this story about Gogol and Yvonne that Orlac is just sort of a minor character in. It does kind of um, indicate that the events ramp up at the end, sure. right? Like, we get, rather than kind of like a boom, boom, pause, boom, boom, yeah. it's a boom, 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 boom. Yeah, which is a much more Hollywood style of story structure. That's yeah. how we expect story structure to work totally. in, in Western Hollywood style. This movie hits all those booms so quickly that we don't even get a denouement. No, no. Very much... <laughs> Laurie dies and the movie's over. Yeah, very much in the Universal Studios style. <laughs> Once the monster's dead, who gives a shit? 
I feel like that change in emphasis, where we're following it from Gogol's point of view, does help the ending and the plot flow. Because by letting us in on the scam the whole time, we don't have to have this big tiresome explanation scene at the end. Oh, right. Um, you know, we knew everything the whole time, right? That's one of the things we most ragged on the original movie for, was that you have to explain how any of this makes any sense if you do it from Orlac's point of view. By doing it from Gogol's point of view, we see him do it all, so we don't need to have that. Mm-hmm, totally. On the other hand... On the other Orlac's hand... Mm-hmm. It kind of neuters the central fear of the source text. Of the source text. I yeah. think it establishes very well a new fear, but I do agree with you. Yeah, the the source text is a body horror story, right? It's about a fear of a loss of control over our own bodies. And that's not really what's going on here anymore, because we know that Orlac's being manipulated, and Gogol's descent into madness isn't really about that. It's not about body horror. It's, you know, now it's a movie that's basically about the fear of weird little psychos who are trying to take our girls, our women. At least if you're seeing it from a male perspective. If you're seeing it from a female perspective, it's just the fear of weird little psychos. And it kind of puts it on that same shelf as Phantom of the Opera, The Magician, The Unknown, Dracula, White Zombie, The Mummy, Mystery of the Wax Museum, The Black Cat, and The Raven. Fair. I would argue that the fear of a loss of body autonomy is still there. Because in the final scene, um, Yvonne has to mimic her own wax figure, where she can't move, she has to stay exactly still and experience whatever Gogol is going to do, and the fear of being, like, your, of having your boundaries traversed again and again when you, first you're like, no, I'm not really interested, no, I get you're a nice guy, but no, no, please stop, is that, like, your autonomy is not being respected. For sure, but I think the fear of you know, having your boundaries broken and your body autonomy threatened by someone else is very different than the fear of having your body autonomy betrayed by yourself. Very, very fair. Yeah, yeah. very true. Those are, those are two different fears, right? It's like the difference between the fear of getting cancer and your own body killing you from the inside or the fear of, like, a legislator passing a healthcare law that means you can no longer, you know take care of yourself, or whatever, right? It's, they're both super valid, but definitely a different kind of emphasis. My thing with the way that Mad Love has been structured, and by giving it that kind of, you know, the madman who's after the girl who's already married and he can't have her, so that's why he does all the evil. While Mad Love does it all very well, and it's, it's a really great portrayal of it, largely because Laurie is so good. Yes. It does make it slightly less unique compared to Orlac's hand, in terms of the broader horror canon, is what I mean. You know, because we can say, well, that's kind of like all these other movies, whereas we haven't really seen anything before or since Orlac's hand that's been quite like that. So, I'm not saying that's a better or worse thing, just yeah. pointing it out. For me, Mad Love is like a code-era version of Murders in the Zoo, and it's done incredibly well in spite of the code's limitations. Uh, in communicating this fear. That being said, you know, Mad Love 
does have more than just horror going on, mainly because it still has to hit those plot beats of original Orlack story mm-hmm. of like, oh, they're running out of money. Oh, he has to go see his stepdad. Oh, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And then also just taking the movie on its own terms, the humor in here can be a little tiring with the reporter character and also the drunk housekeeper. As you said, the point with the drunk housekeeper, it does become a plot point, as does her bird, as does even the reporter. Yeah, they're all necessary, but they're certainly like... It's tiring when the punchline is people being drunk. It's also like you could maybe get away with one of them. Like, the reporter's fine, he's the same fast-talking... American, you know, cynical American reporter that we've seen a million times. It really gets to be a problem because so many of his scenes and the housekeeper scenes are with each other. Which is odd, but whatever. Yeah, like, the problem with the housekeeper for me, other than it's really tiresome because there's nothing to the joke other than she's drunk, is I can't imagine a guy like Gogol, as we're shown through the rest of the movie, Putting up with having an alcoholic housekeeper? Yeah. The fact that she's not fired as soon as, like, the reporter gets let in that far. Yeah. That, it doesn't, that doesn't make sense to me. So it, it's one of those things where the the comic relief actually ends up sort of breaking some suspension of disbelief, right? Yeah. So those things being said, to me, there's a few specific standout scenes in the film. And that's when Yvonne first meets Gogol when she tells him to fuck off and, like, pushes him away. The scene when he starts to go mad, he hears her voice and he's seeing himself in the mirrors. Yeah, and there's the different versions of himself in the mirror that are talking back to him and telling him to, like, just go for it, go for the crazy. And I think, um, this is a tangent, but with the stuff with the mirrors, when he realizes, like, oh, I could put Rolo's hands on Orlac we see his face in the mirror. Yeah. And we're actually focused on the other doctor. Yes. So it's, to me, that it is telling that his genius is tied to his insanity, Mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. is interesting. For sure. Um, And then, of course, the entire end climax in his study. Yeah. And with every one of those scenes, there's either Peter Lorre or Francis Drake. And to me, those two make this film. Yeah, for sure. I think... Peter Lorre's performance really is what stands head and shoulders above everything else. I agree that that Frances Drake does a good job. She accomplishes what we've talked about in other episodes as being kind of that Faye Ray job of being, you know, a damsel in distress uh, and remaining a likable, sympathetic character who we feel for and who, when she's threatened, you know, we want to see her get rescued rather than... Being like, well, it's your fault. You got yourself into this, right? Like, totally. She she definitely accomplishes that. Um, Colin Clive is good. He just doesn't have a lot to work with here. And then everybody else is just kind of there. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that really makes this movie for me is the superb filmmaking from Freund and Toland. You know, you mentioned the expressionism. It's not as groundbreaking as some other works in their filmographies. You know. At one point, Freund invented unchained camera. At another point, Toland perfected deep focus. No one's inventing anything here, right? But their skill and talent really elevates this film just as much as Laurie does. And it's why, for me, the scene that 
rises this movie up a level is that scene where we see Gogol go mad. Because that's that's where it kind of, for me, um, escapes the bounds of itself, in a way. It, it transcends the rest of the movie. Yeah, totally. Do you want to move into ranking? Yeah, for sure. I've got a really small range for Mad Love, and I feel like it might totally change if we end up making a specific decision. But what's your range looking like? Well, what's the specific decision? Well, my range is numbers 20 to 23. I felt this was definitely better than the 1913 Student of Prague, uh, so that was sort of my floor. And then the Raven's really similar to this in a certain way, in that, like, it's also about a brilliant surgeon obsessed with a woman he can't have. White Zombie is very similar, because, again, it's some rich guy obsessed with a woman he can't have. And then right above that is the original Orlok's Hand, and I haven't quite settled in my mind which version of this story I prefer because it's the same story but they're about two different things. That's my range right now. I think it could go above Orlax Hand if we determine that it should. I'm not sure it goes higher than House of Usher or Freaks or the 26th Student of Prague, you know, or any higher up the list. So that's where my range ended up. This will be very interesting because my range is much higher than yours. Okay. I had a feeling after the discussion. <laughs> my range is between number 10, Murders in the Zoo, mm -hmm. and above number 14, Cat and the Canary. Ooh, I don't know if it goes that high for me. Um, well, let me um, kind of respond to something that you said in the discussion and you kind of said again here where you... Uh, said that Mad Love is similar to The Raven, The Magician, White Zombie, other films where you have a mad scientist or magician, whatever. A villain. A villain taking away your girl. Mm -hmm. I feel like Mad Love gives more agency and more emotional depth to Yvonne than in those other movies. That's a good point, um, for sure. I, I, I can definitely see that, because... In a lot of those other movies, it's the family opera is the villain, and Raoul is the hero, and Christine's the thing that they're fighting over, basically. Um, and in this movie, you don't really get the sense that, like, Orlac's even fighting with Gogol over Yvonne, because Orlac's just been sidelined by Gogol with this whole your hands are killing people plot. So it's really about Yvonne and Gogol. And again, that might be a consequence of the fact that Colin Clive just couldn't do a lot, like, that he's, like I said, in the movie to the minimum amount, but the end result of that consequence is making Yvonne a more significant character, because he kind of had to. So for me, it's no longer, will the mad villain steal your girl, it's, will he actually get me? Can I escape? The point of view is different, is the argument you're kind of making, that we're not from Stephen Orlack's point of view so much as we're from Yvonne Orlack's point of view. As much as we could be in this, like, refiguring of the plot. Mm -hmm. um, I started with Murders in the Zoo because, like I said earlier, to me this is a Code-era version of Murders in the Zoo. Yeah, I still don't, I still don't really connect them that strongly in my mind, but I, I understand why you do. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that you'd start there. And kind of going to the list, like, underneath Murders in the Zoo is Caligari, 
Nosferatu, Phantom of the Opera, The Cat and the Canary. And we talked about Phantom of the Opera and how both Phantom of the Opera and Mad Love showed that creepy guy going after a girl. Mm -hmm. But to me, Mad Love feels more dire. Phantom of the Opera, there's a lot of other things going on, right? Because yeah. like, they're both adapting novels, so there's a lot they need to like shove into the film. And as a result, um, I feel like Mad Love is a bit more like cohesive um, versus the Phantom of the Opera that we've seen. Yeah, Phantom's definitely a little all over the place, um, for sure. Okay, before I start thinking about this movie this highly, sure. um, let's talk about why, for you, is this better than Orlac's Hand? Because both filmmakers, and I, I know that there's a lot of people involved in making a movie, but to just put it on, like, the vision of the people making the movie, in Orlac's Hand, they were clearly, like, their focus was Conrad Veidt going crazy. Mm -hmm. And that was to the detriment of telling the actual story of adapting the novel they were actually trying to adapt. Sure, because the pacing, as we, we said, is bad. <laughs> yeah. Versus this film, where I think their interest was to show a descent into madness on the part of the doctor. Mm -hmm. And the way that they reconfigured the plot of the novel, it, it's very tight. Like, the only time that you start to kind of go like, eh, is w with the drunk housekeeper, as you pointed out. And a little, eh, with the, like, dressing up as Rolo. He didn't really need to do that. He could have just confirmed Orlac's paranoia about having Rolo's hand, but he needed to dress up as Rolo because it was in the novel. And it's it's a big scene. Like, even in the original movie, I feel like that's one of the most, like, memorable scenes. And you can be guaranteed that Carl Freund knew and saw that original movie because it was a German Expressionist film from back when he was doing German Expressionist films. Totally. And so I feel like they managed to strike the balance of what they're actually interested in and making a movie that's good. <laughs> I don't know if I 100% agree with you. I see what you're saying in that the balance is a lot better. Um, I do think this movie's... The pacing makes more sense. I mean, I prefer getting to the train crash and the hand operation and stuff faster in the original, but I also have always had a problem with how little happens in that movie for such a long stretch of it. My counter-argument would be that I don't know if this movie does a, any better job actually telling the plot. Because of the way they've changed the emphasis, they've still shuffled the plot to the sidelines. They've just done a better job of what they've replaced it with because there's actual events now, rather than just Conrad Veidt staring at his hands in a massive room for 40 minutes. But, you know, stuff like the, the, the Orlacs getting out of money and him having to go see this stepfather who hates him for reasons comes just as much out of left field here as it did in the original. So I, I don't know if I 100% agree with you about this tells the story better. I think they both kind of sideline the novel to equal degree. This movie just found something better to fill the void with. I think that ultimately, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Honestly, I think really why you like this movie better is because in terms of what the two versions are focused on, you give a shit more about what Mad Love is focused on. That the, the central fear of 
you know, the creepy guy going after this woman who can't really get rid of him because it's not safe to do so, and, you know, being threatened by this person and all of that hits you a lot harder and, and means a lot more to you and affects you a lot more than this kind of much more hypothetical fear of, like, what if my hands turned against me? One's a lot more real and I think hits you a lot more harder, and I think that's really why you prefer this. You probably have a point, but I don't think that's the only reason. I feel like the way that it's paced, I feel like the way that it's more holistic and how it deals with the plot points, and I the way that it characterizes people is more than just, like, he's going crazy. She's upset because she's dealing with debt. I feel like there's more here. I, I definitely agree it's paced better, for sure. The structure feels right to us when we watch it because it's so much more that um, expected Hollywood narrative structure. One of the problems I have with this movie, though, is how sidelined Orlack is in his own story. It almost feels like the, um, I mean, it's not a comedy, but it almost feels like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of Hands of Orlack, where it's like, we're going to tell the same story from the point of view of some minor characters now. Um, and it's weird because of how much Orlack was the focus of the original. And to me, it's almost like a letdown that Colin Clive didn't get to really portray that arc. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I have difficulties with in this movie. But I totally agree that it it's probably, you know, structurally speaking, the better movie. There aren't long stretches where nothing's happening. Yeah, the surgery on hands is more of a um, inciting incident than... The point. The point. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's a subplot. It's part of the thing. It's, it's a, the MacGuffin, really, right? Like... It's it's the Death Star plans or the Maltese Falcon of this movie and that it's not really important. So if it's better than Orlac's Hand because it's more, you know, the structure is better and it's more narratively appealing, I can kind of see why this is better than Phantom of the Opera in the sense, like we've already talked about, that it's telling a similar story but it's much more focused mm-hmm. on that story. Why is it better than Nosferatu or Caligari? For me, kind of where this film fits is below Nosferatu or possibly above Nosferatu. So I think it's a good idea to talk about Nosferatu. What kind of struck me about this range, 10 to 14, is we have Murders in the Zoo and Phantom of the Opera with the one of the themes in some capacity in both of those films and in this film as women treated as possessions. Yeah, there's there's two different points in the timeline of a domestic abuse are represented by either of those movies. Between Nosferatu and The Cat and the Canary, you see women kind of struggling with their gender roles. Um, so The Cat and the Canary, it's, will people believe me that I'm not insane mm-hmm. because they're trying to convince her that she's insane so she'll give up the inheritance, whatever. Nosferatu... Um, I forget the name of the lady in it. Ellen. Ellen. Um, she has to deal with this incompetent husband. <clears throat> like, she's the one who sacrifices yeah. herself yeah, to, yeah. like, save the village. Yeah, yeah. Whatever. All of the, like, other characters who all happen to be men are kind of incompetent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she they, has they, to step up. Yeah, they, no, one does, no one else does anything. Yeah. 
So to me, it was like women struggling with those gender roles. In Mad Love, Yvonne, despite making the decision of, I'm going to quit my job, I'll be a stay-at-home wife to my successful pianist husband, is the one dealing with the bills Mm -hmm. and the financial side of the household. She's also the one who's, like, getting his hands saved and shit, right? Like, she's the one going to Gogol and getting the plot rolling, right? Yeah, and that's consistent from the 1924 Mm -hmm. film. Sure. um, And I would assume from the novel as well, Mm -hmm. that uh, it's the wife that has to kind of step up and do things with the plot. It feels like kind of, you know, the inference is like, well... Her husband's an artist, so <laughs> someone's got to be practical around here or something. But but she's the one who's like, hey, maybe talk to your stepdad. I know you're very, <laughs> like, proud, but we're kind of drowning in debt. Yeah. It's interesting to think of Nasratu, The Cat and the Canary, and Mad Love in that way as well. Mm-hmm. That being said, I feel like arguing that Mad Love is a better horror movie than Nasratu um, because they both have women who struggle with gender roles, I feel like that's a bit of a stretch. I think yeah. Nosferatu has more stakes because it's like this um, vampire coming to town and just causing a plague. So many people die in that movie versus the very personal horror of this guy just will not take no for an answer. Yeah. So to me, like I feel like Mad Love could definitely go below Nosferatu, above Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I struggle with with Mad Love is, as well as it's depicting it, and, and, and you know, it's, it's handling this story point better than a lot of other movies, it's, it's a story point we have seen before. It's, it's kind of really similar to The Raven, the last movie we just saw. Um, and What's the plot point that you're referring to? The central theme of evil villain after woman he can't have and he's insane about it and i think that's as as you know as good as mad love is about portraying that it's one of those things where it it makes it feel less special for me as a horror movie like on a list of ranking horror movies you know it's like it's not doing mad love isn't really doing anything new it's taking things that other movies have done in the past and melding them together in a way that works way better than it should, right? Because, like, they're sitting there and they're like, okay, how can we do Hands of Orlack in a postcode universe? Oh, well, what if we tell it from the villain's point of view? Well, what's his motivation? I don't know, maybe he likes the girl, like a Phantom of the Opera thing. And it's like, that probably shouldn't work, but it does really well, um... You know, when comparing it as a list of horror movies, and like you said, like, maybe gender roles isn't the best criterion to go on when comparing horror movies, um, even if it's an interesting one. I, I, I can probably end up agreeing with you. I think it, for all the reasons we've discussed, it is probably better than Phantom of the Opera. Um, that I have no problem with. And I can't articulate why it's not as good as Nosferatu, my gut just kind of says it isn't. So I'm I'm totally fine with that spot. Cool. I'm totally with you that it, it's... Um, yeah, it's... I can't quite articulate it either, um, besides thinking about the stakes. Right. Oh, <laughs> that was an unintentional pun. <laughs> but, um, yeah, just... 
there's there's uh, a lot more writing on the line. Yeah, for sure. I I think I think Nosferatu does a better job of being creepy, partially because we're not watching it from like Orlock's point of view. Like as much as Gogol is super creepy, there's a way in which he's less frightening because we're with him the whole time. Because as much as I know you've been centering Yvonne in your reading of this movie, she isn't the point of view character. It's Gogol. And and I think that is, like you said earlier, part of the way that we can trick ourselves into thinking he's not threatening. And Orlok's threatening because he's just this horrible, unknowable force, right? Totally. Okay, so coming in at number 13 is Mad Love from 1935, directed by Carl Freund. You talked me up on the list this time. That that usually isn't how this works. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting. By about ten <laughs> spots. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised how low you were. I was like, oh boy, I didn't think I would get you to where I really felt this film deserved to be. Um, but I appreciate the conversation. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to other episodes, you can find our YouTube playlist to watch some of these films that we've mentioned, and you can also find our appeals box where you can submit appeals, but also questions, concerns, and anything of that sort. You can also contact us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday. We're hosted on SoundCloud and are available also on iTunes and Google Play. Some of the ways that you can help support the show include leaving a review on iTunes. The more reviews and positive ratings we receive, the easier it is for other people to find the podcast. Uh, Sharing the podcast with other people is another great one, whether that's through various social media outlets or just through word of mouth. If you know someone who'd be into a show about classic horror of days gone by, we're definitely the ones to recommend, I think. (laughs) The other new way, of course, to help support the show is on our Patreon. Check it out at patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast. You can support us for as little as a dollar a month. Whenever you go to say a dollar a month, I keep thinking of, like, for only a dollar a day, this child can eat. You can keep this podcast going, I know. (laughs) What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week we are into the B-movie era of horror. And it's a little-known film from Columbia Pictures starring Boris Karloff. It's The Black Room. Okay. I know nothing about this movie. Well, I'm stoked to see it because it's Boris Karloff. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.